beloved, both to let go of what is familiar and comfortable, and it takes faith to embrace with assurance things hoped for, and to enjoy the conviction of things not yet seen. Now, Abraham serves here as an example of faith to all of you who believe. Because this is a picture of the call that God has placed on your lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think there's any other way we can understand passages like Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Familiar passage to many believers, but this is the call that's on our lives. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let go of that life of the flesh and embrace the life of the spirit. By the promise of God of those things that are part of that life that is spiritual. Jesus said specifically that those who are his are not of this world. In John 17 and verse 4. Peter calls you who believe strangers and pilgrims. Strangers and exiles in this world. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. And Abraham used those very same words when speaking of himself and asking to purchase land when he was looking for a place to bury his wife. He called himself a stranger and a pilgrim. Same words that Peter uses to describe the believer. That's in Genesis 23 and verse 4. And here in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're told that this was true of the family of Abraham as well. They all died in faith, verse 13 tells us, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, strangers and pilgrims. It's by faith that you leave the world and all its flashy and and seemingly lavish expectations behind. And sink all of your hope and trust in the promises of God. You who believe are following the admonition of Paul. The admonition that he gave in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 beginning in verse 17. In 2 Corinthians 6.17 Paul says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, or you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And it's by faith that you fully and joyfully embrace the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, you love him. Though you do not see him, now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
You let go of that which is temporal and that which is visible and that which you can embrace physically. And you embrace the promises of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you love him who you've not seen. But yet you are loving with joy inexpressible. Thomas Watson said, We glorify God by believing. It sets to its seal that God is true. He that believes flies to God's mercy and truth as to an altar of refuge. He garrisons himself in the promises and trusts all he has with God. And I love that picture. He says we move out of the world and our dependence on the world and we move into the fellowship of the Lord and we engarrison ourselves with his promises and we put our trust in him. And what he means is we just build a fortress for ourselves out of the promises of God and our trust and confidence in him and his love for us and his care for us. And we dwell in that garrison that he has prepared for us. Now when you're told that Abraham went out from Ur, it expresses that he got out or he escaped and spread forth. Now, if any of you children have uh, ever made biscuits or rolls from one of those cardboard cans that you, you crack on the edge of the counter and it breaks open, you know how when you crack it on the counter and it breaks open, the, the dough in there kind of explodes out of that can. And uh, if you've ever had one blow up in your refrigerator, which happens sometimes when they get a little old, the cardboard gets a little weak and the yeast gets a little powerful and they can explode in the refrigerator, you know what I'm talking about. But in that, you have a good picture in your head of the idea here. The idea is, um, it's such a fitting illustration because when he left Ur... It looked like he was leaving everything that could make his life important and substantial and blessed. But it was as soon as he left Ur that he got out of the confines of the world and into the joy and the promises of the Lord that Abraham was able to spread out, to expand, and to become more than he could ever be in this world by being attached to the world itself. His spiritual life was like being broken out of that, out of that confining can. And he, he was exploded then into the, the testimony and the witness that he could be for Christ. It wasn't until he left the confining environs of that sin-choked pagan and worldly culture that he could grandly flourish. And some of you might catch a pun there, and I meant that pun. The biscuits are often called grands that are in those things. It was when he could grandly flourish when he left the confines there. Then it follows that by faith he went to live in the land of promise or became a sojourner or one who lives beside the land of promise from God. And this is a reference to Genesis 12 13, and also Genesis 17. And I've chosen to take this from Genesis 17, though you can read it in verse 12, rather in chapter 12 and chapter 13 too. But in Genesis 17, verse 1, we read, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, 
I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Do you see the way this is expanding? Do you see the way this is spreading? What a contrast it is to if it, what if it, what had happened if he had stayed in Ur, in that culture and in that society. As he moves into this relationship with the Lord and this covenant relationship is established, things are opening up widely. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So here now is Abraham living out of the world, sojourning in the promises of God, and living as one who expects and anticipates all that the Lord has promised. And he's doing it as a witness to you and me and to the whole world. Living in the promises of God, and by living in those promises, knowing the blessing of the Lord, And seeing those blessings flourish in his life and being a testimony to all around him as that happens. Again, Thomas Watson says, So it is with a godly man, and we would say, or woman. Though his body be from the earth, yet the sparkling of his affections is from heaven. His heart is drawn into the upper region as high as Christ." He not only casts off every wicked work, but every earthly weight. He is not a worm, but an eagle. Abram's changed. If he had remained in error, he would have been a worm. But by believing by faith and moving out of that into the full enjoyment of the promises of God, he went from a worm crawling on the earth, digging in the earth, to living in heaven. Abraham lived as a promise believer, not a promise keeper, but as a promise believer should live even in the land of promise. The fact that he lived there with his fellow heirs of the promise and tents, that gave evidence that even though he didn't possess any real territory himself, he fully trusted God to fulfill that promise For his offspring. And he looked beyond that to the promise made concerning his offspring of faith. That is, you and me. We who are the children of Abraham by faith. Stephen put it this way in Acts chapter 7 and verses 4 and 5. Stephen said there, Then he went out, that is Abraham, went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. 
Abraham's expectations went far beyond Judea. The very way he lived in the land showed exactly how he viewed it. He viewed it as a down payment, as it were, on still greater promises. You might think of it this way. Suppose I owned a great estate, and I told you that it's all going to be yours. I'm going to give it all to you. And I want you to come and live in the guest house until I'm ready to give you everything I promised. So I just want you to come live in the, it's all going to be yours in the end, but I want you to come and live in the guest house. You leave your present home and you move into the guest house in what? In anticipation of inheriting the whole estate, right? That's how you go and live there. You say, yes, I'll go and live in this, this house, but this house is not my home. I'm going to the big house. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to possess this whole estate. Yes, I'm, I'm working on the garden outside of the guest house, but the whole, all the fields, all the gardens, all the ground of this estate is mine. I'm tending to it with that in mind, that one day it will all be mine. You make yourself at home in the guest house. But you would never consider it the fulfillment of the promised inheritance, but always only a part of it, with the whole to follow. And that's the way Abraham lived in the land of promise. Yes, I'm here. This is the land of promise that God's going to give to me and to my children. But I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. I'm looking beyond this. I'm looking for one whose promise has guaranteed this to me, but only this as a sign of greater things yet to be fulfilled. The guest house would be yours for sure, but you'd only see it as an earnest payment, as it were. And this illustrates how Abraham lived in the land of promise. Guse says, When we are once engaged and have given up ourselves to God in the way of believing, there must be no choice, no dividing or halting, no having, but we must follow him fully, wholly, and universally, living by faith in all things. And that's what we're told Abraham did. Now you have moved, you who believe by the grace of God, out of the world and into his church and into the fellowship of the saints. You've received the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Paul spoke of it that way in writing to us in 2 Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, you know what tent that is, right? That's this. This tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to, be put, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What beautiful words they are. So what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. 
by the fullness of life, by real life, by true life, by really living like we have never lived before. This mortal is about to be swallowed up in that way. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or a down payment. Earnest money, as it were, towards the promise of the whole. So we are always of good courage, says Paul. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But we know that when we're out of the body, we are with the Lord forever. And that our bodies will also be raised in the day of resurrection and glorified. Which brings us then to the wonderful statement in verse 10. For he that is Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It was Abraham's faith that allowed him to look forward to this great promised city. A.T. Robertson says that he looked forward or exercised steady and patient waiting for that next step. He was living in the world, living in the body, because he had to, until God appointed otherwise, but he was groaning in that body to be delivered into all that was promised. Abraham lived in that land of promise, subject to dangers and trials. He himself was vulnerable and weak. But as Guz says, despite this, Abraham lived in the continual exercise of faith and trust in God, in his power, in his all-sufficiency, and in his faithfulness. And all believers do. All who are alive with the faith that Abraham had exercise that same faith, that trust in God, in his power, in his all-sufficiency, in his faithfulness. Psalm 105, verse 7 says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he had made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. And that's the way Abraham lived in this world, with his sons who were heirs of the promise. True faith, beloved, tends to be uniform. And by that we mean that it trusts God not only for the future beyond the world, this world, but for the present as well. It trusts his providences as well as his promises. True faith puts confidence in both. Calvin says, Abraham's thoughts penetrated even into heaven, giving clear evidence of the extent of his faith. Now there are two things that it's vital to see here in this 10th verse. And the first is, the contrast between these two cities, the one he left and the one he was looking for. 
And I deliberately spent a lot of time last week setting forth the beauty and the technical advancement and the sophistication of Ur so that we could have that as a background for this point. Because in contrast to the city whose designer and builder is God, Ur is hardly worth mentioning. I deliberately set out the the sophistication of that culture so that we could compare it to this reality. All of that is hardly worth mentioning in comparison to the city that Abraham looks to inherit from God. Abraham left there looking for a city whose technician or designer, and the Greek word translated designer is related to the word from which we get our word technique and thereby the word technician. So he's looking for a city not that's technologically developed, but one whose tech is God himself, the one who built it. The all-wise, the knowing and eternal God of the heavens. This God is the artisan framer of the city Abraham looked to in faith. He could look at Ur and he could see there all that men could do. But he was looking for a city in which he could see all that God could do. And when you do that, there's no comparison between the two. What a contrast this city that God has prepared for those who believe is compared to to the remains, the crumbling remains of Ur. It's a city built out of mud and tar. Ur. The bricks are dried mud, and the thing that holds them together is tar. And this mud and tar city is limited by the imagination of mankind, and it was riddled with sin. Don't be fooled, beloved. Just as the ancient city reflected modern culture in regards to science and politics and commerce and education, it also reflected all the same manifestations of sin in the hearts of men women, and children. Vice, idolatry, fraud, political intrigue, thievery, murder, all the things that are a part of any worldly society. And every other crime was found in its streets. Advanced, culturally advanced, sophisticated, it was. But compared to the city of God, it was a cesspool of sin. And how are we to understand this city whose designer and builder is God? Well, it's described by the Spirit later in the epistle here. In chapter 11, if you move down to verse 14, he says there, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that is there, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a heavenly city. If you move to chapter 12 and verse 22, it's further described there, this city. There, we're told, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. We put on our best clothes and we go out. How do you think that compares to being in the company of angels in festal gathering? You think of that in the context of Ur. There were certainly times when people adorned themselves, the wealthy dressed themselves in everything fancy that they could find. They made beautiful gold ornaments that they were hanging around their necks. They were uh, using precious metals and, and, and really... Uh, doing everything they could to adorn their bodies, beautiful earrings, beautiful necklaces, beautiful headdresses, beautiful dress in itself. But what is that like compared to angels dressed for festal gatherings? What do you think? There's no comparison, see? No comparison. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven... And to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Ur passed into oblivion years, eons ago, beloved. Being deserted by the river that gave it life. The city of God is eternal. And its stream is a never-ending source of satisfaction for God's people. In Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5, you read there, There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And then we move to Revelation 21, and I thought really wrestled in my own mind whether I should just describe this or read it. But having trust in the power of the word of God, I'm just going to read what it says. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we just stop there and think, beloved, how does that compare with Ur? Or with Seattle? Or with New York City? or with any other city here on earth. There's no comparison. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and, he will be his pe- and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's no city in this world that comes with that promise, no matter what opportunity it offers. No matter what entertainment it offers, this is something that belongs to those who dwell in the city of God. And that's the city that Abraham's looking to. He's not looking back to Ur. He's looking forward to see what God will do as he has promised. Wiping away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We move down to Revelation 21 and verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And he goes on then to describe the beauty of this wonderful city, the gates of it and so on. Now it's interesting, isn't it? You come on the interstate towards one of our great cities and you see it off there in the distance and it looks like a shining city on a hill. And the closer you get, the more you see that that's not what it is. You start running into all the graffiti scrawled over everything, the trash and the dirt everywhere, and it's a letdown to go into it from seeing it from afar on the horizon. Not with this city, beloved. Not with this city. You're looking at it on the horizon now, but you cannot, in your present state, fully appreciate and understand the glory of this city in which you will dwell forever and ever with the Lord. You can't even begin to imagine the beauty of this place. It's described in these terms for us that we find here because we don't really have anything else to, to imagine with than our own experience. I always think it's fascinating that we're told the streets are paved with gold. And people think about that and they think, oh, wow, well, that's really special. No, that's not. Because that's the asphalt for this kingdom because... Gold is nothing here. That's the comparison. Not that we're walking on streets of gold, but we're walking on gold because it doesn't have any value in the context of all that is ours through what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he talks about the size of the city and and so on. And then in verse 18 we read, The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, and so on. And then we come down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You think, how many times... We as believers put our confidence in men and we send them off to represent us in positions of authority and government and they disappoint us. Never here. Never here. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who is written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Er becomes as dated, as backward, and as insignificant as any earthly place, already smoldering under the heat of the coming judgment when the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. See, what Abraham was leaving was nothing compared to what he was promised. And he put his promise in that. And I admit that these pictures are given to us to help us try to understand the spiritual glories of this city, this this place that we will have in the presence of God. But even as we read it, as it's pictured to us in these terms, it is beyond our imagination. And that's what God has promised to all of those who leave this world and turn to him. Which brings us to the second vital point regarding this verse. The second thing to consider here is that there is but one way to gain access to this grand and glorious city that makes every place on earth seem dull. That city, where having escaped the old one, you can explode and expand in ways that you've never imagined before, enjoying things beyond your wildest expectations. And that one way, beloved, is through the means represented and set forth at this table this morning. That one means of gaining access to this city is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for your sins. Your faith in his sacrifice for you. Through his body broken and his blood shed. Jesus himself says in John 14 and verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's by faith in him, beloved, and in all the promises that God has covenanted with him to keep in your behalf that you move out of this world 
and into the inheritance of the saints, out of what is represented by Ur and what is promised by God. When we sit at this table this morning, part of what we are remembering and celebrating is our citizenship. Our citizenship in the kingdom that God has prepared for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.